Our first reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make, a, make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Our second reading is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. In John chapter 8, the famous story is set up where a woman is caught in the act of adultery. The Pharisees bring her in front of the crowds and Jesus. They're angry at her, and they're trying to accuse Jesus, and they say, should we stone this woman? They're ready to execute her as the law demanded for her adultery. Jesus, of course, famously gets on the ground and is drawing. All eyes are on Jesus instead of this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They're looking at Jesus now. He says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Each of the Pharisees walk away. And when it's just Jesus and the woman, Jesus says, does no one condemn you? And his very next words are basically, I forgive you. Now go and sin no more. The anger of the Pharisees was at this woman for her sin, but by the end, it's directed at Jesus. He takes her shame on himself and offers her forgiveness and hope of life because she was basically dead. 
And yet he says, go and sin, because what she had done was sin, go and sin no more. If you ask the average person who is outside the church, do Christians today represent the Pharisees or Jesus when it comes to sexuality, the vast majority would say the Pharisees. We look a lot less like Jesus. In the book Unchristian that many of you are reading along with me, David Kinnaman writes, when you introduce yourself as a Christian to a friend, neighbor, or business associate who is an outsider to the church, you might as well have it tattooed on your arm that you are anti-homosexual, gay-hater, homophobic. I doubt you think of yourself in these terms, but that's what outsiders think of you. Hateful and bigoted towards gay, lesbian, and transgender people. 91% of young adults, 91% of young adults identify Christians as hateful and bigoted towards gay, lesbian, and transgender people. And outsiders outside of the church would say we are hypocritical, vicious towards some sins, and yet ignoring many others. These are, of course, perceptions of outsiders, but perceptions are often driven by very real experiences. And not just very real experiences, very painful experiences. The vast majority of people in America who are outside of the church are actually de-churched. They have left, many of them because they have experienced the woundedness that the church has provided, or they've seen it firsthand in somebody else's life. And so there is a place, a very real and authentic place for the church and Christians to say, I am sorry. And so if you are somebody who has dealt with the duplicity and hatred of Christians and the church because of things that the church says is sin, if you have dealt with pain and abuse caused by Christians, and there are many people who probably have, kids who grew up in a youth group and then came out with some sort of sexual challenge and they're kicked out of a youth group. Being shouted down either in your face or at least in the social media network world. There's a lot of families that have been pulled apart. And a lot has been pushed in self-righteousness and selective condemnation of sin. We condemn sexual sin, but not our materialism. I admit and confess that the church has done this, and I as a Christian have done this. And it's not what the gospel says, because the gospel is a leveler of the playing field. Bigotry comes from a false view of sin. It's the view that you're a sinner and I am not, or at least your sin is worse than mine. But in the gospel, all of us are sinners. We're all done for. There's no room for pride. When we talk about the gospel as Christians, we talk about being loved and saved by God. What is the basis of my being loved and saved? Is it that my life is somewhat in order? I'm rather morally upright? I was a virgin when I got married. 
It's not our lifestyle that saves us. It is Jesus Christ crucified. I am sorry if the church has said otherwise to you, because that is wrong. And I'm also sorry, and I admit that we have not often, and I have not often, and the church has not often, I don't just mean our church, but Christians in general, have not thought or acted like Jesus, especially when it comes to sexuality. I'm sorry. As we hit on this issue of sex and sexuality today, I want to also admit that this is complex. There's a lot behind it that many of us don't even realize in our own lives, in our culture and where we are right now, and it's also incredibly personal. I'm going to do my best to be sensitive, but let me tell you that a sermon is not always the best place for a topic like this. A one-on-one discussion usually is better. But there's a place for this as well, for opening God's Word in the place of the church and understanding what God would say to us. I want to be sensitive. I also want to be thoughtful because many times Christians have been reactive and not thoughtful. And I want us to be clear this morning so that we are the kind of people who develop theological integrity. I throw that word out there, that phrase, theological integrity. Many Christians lack theological integrity. What we say about one thing does not hold up in others. There is a way to have a good Christian biblical theology that has integrity. I want us to cultivate that. And lastly, I want us to be moving in our actions and attitudes towards compassion, to look like Jesus' response to that woman and less like the Pharisees. Let me pray, because that's about all I feel like I can do right now. God, forgive us our sins as a church and as Christians. Forgive us our lack of love. Forgive us our lack of theological integrity. Forgive us for misrepresenting you. But guide our thoughts now, whether we come here believing this stuff or disregarding it. Give us wisdom. Open our eyes, our minds, our hearts by the power of your Spirit. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. So first, if we're going to talk about sex, you have to go a couple steps back, okay? And I'm going to throw the word up there that is God. But here's the question. How, how do we determine what is right and what is good? Really and truly, how do you discern identity, meaning, and purpose in life? How do you find fulfillment? How do you determine what is fulfilling? What is right? What is good? Where meaning and purpose come from? I'm going to suggest there's two ways. There's the way that all of us do it by nature, every culture, everywhere, always, and there's the gospel way. Here's the way all of us do it. It's discovery. The gospel way is revelation. Do you want to know what is right and good and true, what your identity is, where you're supposed to find yourself, your calling, your vocation, your purpose? Is it discovery or revelation? Most of us, most outsiders and Christians, anyone born in the 21st century or 20th century, 
is on a path of self-discovery. And so the cultural axiom of the day, the cultural truth of the day that everyone just, just buys into from the beginning is do what you want so long as it makes you happy, right? Do what you want so long as it makes you happy. With a couple of caveats, you may not harm others, nor may you constrain or criticize other choices that will make them happy. This is built out of an idea that there's no such thing as absolute truth. There's no foundational moral principles in this world. Each of us is on a relativistic course to find it ourselves. And so long as we're not harming, criticizing, or constraining others, what makes you happy, what you want, is fine. Freedom and choice are the primary desires of Americans. And we say, I have the right, I have the right and the power to live how I want. What we have done is we have elevated autonomy. Autonomy is the gospel of this age. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, is writing to a church that was not very different from that same viewpoint. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, we read Paul talking about sexual immorality in the church, and this is what he writes. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Paul is quoting, nearly every commentator agrees, Paul is quoting a cultural axiom. This was the sort of thing that was thrown around in Corinth. I have the right to do anything. Anything I want to is lawful for I can do whatever I want. You can't tell me what to do. This was the Corinthian church and the Corinthian world in the first century. I can do whatever I want. But Paul asks this question, what is beneficial? And what masters or enslaves us? And when Paul uses that word beneficial, it can also be translated helpful, he has two things in mind. Beneficial is not just what gets me the most money or makes me the happiest. Beneficial in the way that Paul is using it is your calling and the community. Meaning this, the word beneficial in Paul's use here means what allows me to fulfill my calling and what causes most people to flourish. That's what beneficial is in Paul's use. As modern Americans, we ask, who decides what is beneficial? Is what is beneficial what makes me happy? Is being happy beneficial? Is so long as the culture approves it's beneficial? So long as I'm not harming any one individual, there's consent involved in life, it's beneficial. This is the main problem, the main difference between Christianity and everything else. Christianity claims this, God alone determines what is beneficial. God alone determines what is beneficial. That is a hard thing to swallow. It's much easier to show up at church and to say you're a Christian because you came to church than to accept that. 
Christianity claims God alone determines what is beneficial. It also claims that we don't need to discover what is beneficial. We simply need to understand it because God has revealed it. And that's the difference. The cultural narrative and our individual narrative is discovery for identity, purpose, what is good and right, what is happy and fulfilling. What Christianity claims and has always claimed is God has revealed it to us. God reveals it in creation. God reveals himself and what is right and good in creation because when you look at the creation, you're brought to the majesty of God and the detail of God. You see it in your conscience that has a sense of what is right and wrong, this longing for something bigger, greater, more. God has imbued us in this creation with this sense of meaning and purpose, and we see it around us in the physical creation, even in our own bodies. God has revealed himself in creation and in the word, in scripture. Genesis to Revelation is God's word for us. This is God speaking his love letter to us to let us know what he's about and what he desires of us and what life is meant to be about. Scripture contains, as the catechism says, all things that are necessary for life and salvation. You're not going to learn how to drive a car with this, but you're going to learn whether you should run somebody over or not. And God has finally and fully revealed himself in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. God for us, becoming one of us, saying, here I am. I want to know you. I love you. I died for you so that you can have life. God reveals himself, and we find ourselves only in him. Our identity, our meaning, our purpose, as well as our ethics and morality are revealed by God. So let me go to one that all of us agree with. Why is stealing and murder wrong? Why is it wrong? You might say, well, it's against the law. Or it doesn't feel right inside. I feel bad if I murder somebody. Or if you come from like an evolutionary science or a social science perspective, you would say, we've come to learn that it's not beneficial for survival if we steal and murder. But let's go back 200 years. What if you are a white man in 1800s frontier America? What will keep you from murdering and stealing property and land from Native Americans? Will the law? Will cultural norms? Will your conscience? Really? If we go on feelings and desires, if we go on the law, if we go on culture, if we go on just being pragmatic, what's beneficial, what's going to help me out better? Well, what's going to help me out is getting rid of them and taking their land. I'm caricaturing a moral choice there. That's a caricature, so let me just put that aside. But here's the idea behind it. If morality and ethics are purely personal and subjective, they are made of a very, very weak broth. Let me define sin from a biblical perspective, from a Christian perspective. When I say the word sin, you think of immorality, bad things you can do. But when the gospel talks about sin, it talks about life apart from God living your life without regard to God. 
without seeking his revelation to understand myself and my place in this world. God gives us our identity. God gives us our worth, our purpose, what is good and beneficial, and what is not. In the end of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, we get a summary of the main purpose of life when it comes to our bodies. Paul writes, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You want to know the chief end of man, as the Presbyterians say? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Everything that we are made for is made to reflect and live into the majesty and glory of God and therefore find our identity, our meaning, our purpose, our fulfillment. And in reality, regardless of what we're talking about, we should be asking this very question, am I glorifying God not just in my body but in my thoughts, in my money, and how I'm raising my kids, pursuing my career, using my free time, in my intellect, in my property, everything submitted to the glory of God, including my sexuality. Sin is at its root a who is God issue. Sin at its root is a who or what is God issue. If you can't buy into that, the rest of what I'm going to say isn't going to make sense. And here's the reality, none of us really buy into that, even those of us who say we do, like me, because I don't live that out. I don't. None of us do. We all sin and fall short. First is God, second is sex. Christianity roots sexuality in the story of creation. Jesus does this, Paul does this, the church for centuries has done this. Sexuality is rooted in the creation narrative. So let's ask this question, why did God create in the first place? He was bored, he didn't know what else to do with his Lego pile. He was lonely, I need somebody else so I can mess with their lives a little bit. Most theologians would have some version like this. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, Trinity, are in unity. They're in an eternal love relationship, three persons, one God. And in the midst of that loving relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, creation is birthed because it is the sharing of that love and spreading of that love. The spreading of that glory that they shared co-eternal bursts forth in new creation, light, planets, humanity, purpose. And it's seen in the creation of humanity and our sexuality. So let me hit on a couple of verses from the creation narrative in Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 that, that root this. In Genesis 1.27, we didn't read this, we get that we are made in the image of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is a necessary and integral part 
to our maleness and femaleness that more fully reflects God than any one of us on our own does. My maleness reflects God, and for about half of you, your femaleness reflects God in a way that is distinct. And that reflects the diversity of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But there's also unity. In chapter 2, we read, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is not just talking about sex, although it is, that there is a unity that happens physically, but in the, con- in the covenant of marriage, there is a unifying of spirit and emotion. It's saying, I give all of me to all of you, not just I want sex. All of me is committed to all of you for the rest of our life. Amen. That unity, becoming one in God's eyes, reflects the Trinity that is fully one God. And then we get the cultural mandate, the whole purpose behind humanity. And I'm only going to hit on the first part of it. God blessed them. This is chapter 1 again, verse 28, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So what happens when Father, Son, and Spirit are in this unified relationship together? It bursts forth creation. What happens when a man and a woman come together in the covenant of marriage and they act on that love? It bursts forth new creation, a baby, a third. We participate in the creative process and reflect God and carry out his mandate. And then to finish this off, in verse 25 of chapter 2, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is what we're actually longing for. We seek sex. We're longing to be known and loved with nothing to hide. True love. The love of Father, Son, and Spirit. We're looking for an intimacy that is far deeper than sexuality. Out of all of this comes the Christian view on sex. And here it is. I'm going to state it very simply. One man, one woman, in a lifelong, exclusive covenant of marriage. Sexual difference, male and female, is integral. It reflects the Trinity. Sex in the confines of a lifelong commitment to oneness is integral. It is like God's eternal unity. Sex is meant to be a gift to a spouse that produces new creation, like God produces creation. One man, one woman, lifelong exclusive covenant of marriage. That's what Christianity has always taught, and it still does. Everything else is outside of God's intention. Sex is not for personal discovery, fulfillment, or my happiness. Sex within God's purposes is in the confines of that marriage, 
or it is celibacy. And the claim of God, the claim of the Bible, as just confounding as this is, is that true fulfillment is found when sex is in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, or it's in a commitment to celibacy. That somehow there's true fulfillment in there. Everything else is living apart from God's design and purpose. And let me back off of sex for a minute, because I know it's exciting and all, but um, this is not the only area where this is true. True fulfillment is found in the confines of God's purposes and design for everything. Our money, our thoughts, our career, all of our relationships, our desire for approval or power or our need to be accepted and loved by other people, our career, our kids, our academics, our talents, everything finds its true fulfillment in God's design and purpose. So why is this so hard? One, it's because we're sinful. We're sinful and fallen and broken. In the fall, in the fall, right, Adam and Eve push against God's purposes. Creation was a gift to be received. Adam and Eve instead grasp creation, trying to use it for their own good. And every one of us since is broken. We are spiritually broken, emotionally broken, psychologically, physically, experientially, genetically. We are fallen people. So walking in God's ways doesn't feel as natural as it should. We should expect that our sexuality is going to be marred and broken too. And this is often where Christianity has got it wrong because it points fingers rather than recognizing that every one of us is broken sexually. Every one of us. Many of us have deep pain and wounds, a lot of guilt and shame. We obsess about sex or we deny sex. We use it or manipulate it, withholding it, pursuing it, trying to serve ourselves. We are lustful and turning people into objects. We seek approval through it, our own pleasure through it. We seek fulfillment on our own apart from God's purposes. We all need redemption and forgiveness in this. We all need healing in this. We all need spiritual renewal. We want life, right? We all want life to the full. But what God seems to call us to sounds more like death for many of us. And that's our last word, death. Well, second to last word. Here's the good news of the gospel. There is life through death. The Christian gospel is Jesus came to die. He surrendered his physical body. He didn't use his body for what he wanted. He surrendered his body to the purposes of the Father for the good of all others. His calling and the benefit of the community were intertwined as he offers himself on the cross. He died to forgive us of our sin and failure and brokenness in sexuality and in every billion other way that we are broken and fallen. He died to redeem us, to set us free 
from the tyranny and slavery of our sin nature. And he calls us to die too. Isn't that exciting? In Christianity, Christ dies for you and says, oh, and guess what? You get to die as well. Jesus said in Mark 9, 34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To be a Christian is not to be a better, kinder person than everyone else. It's not to show up at church more than everyone else. It's a call to die. Faith in Christ crucified involves killing the self. Who's in? Money, career, relationships, talents, body, kids, sexuality. I die to my lordship over these things. And this is a cost for all Christians. You may not think you struggle in the area of sexuality. I guarantee you struggle in the area of dying to self and living for the glory of God. Every one of us does. And they're all on equal playing fields. We all need to die somewhere. And ultimately, to be a Christian is going to cost you. It just is. It's costly. there, of course, is a uniquely painful cost for some people in the area of sexuality. You see, our sexuality does seem to be so tied to our longings and our hopes, our identity, where we find our meaning. And for a single person or a same-sex attracted person, what I'm saying today about the unique place of Christian sexuality is going to create a crisis. If you're a 30-year-old struggling to achieve some version of happiness in life and hearing the message of Christian sexuality, it's going to be a crisis of identity, of your longings and hopes. And many people who say they want to be faithful to Christianity and understand the Christian sexual calling say it feels like they're going to be alone forever. Like what you're telling me to do is to go and die, die in a hole. And I think it begs anyone who struggles sexually, as well as basically anyone, to answer this question, what do we do when Jesus doesn't make us happy? What do we do when what God calls us to does not make us happy? What do we do if, if God doesn't give us what we are looking for in life, what we feel like we should have in life, what everyone else seems to be having in life? What do we do when Jesus makes us unhappy, it seems, Now, this is not a place for Christians to be gloating in any way because there's a total failure of the church when it comes to singles and our ability to uphold a faithful intimacy. If you're a single person, the church has never offered you anything more than, well, let's get you married, as opposed to let's offer you committed relationships, deep intimacy, a willingness to live with you till you die and say you will not die alone. And everything you're longing for and being known, spiritually, emotionally naked and unashamed, I will offer you. I've uh, put out an article that I'm going to ask anybody who wants to read it to pick up that's hitting on that same issue, that the church has very often called people to sexual purity and not given them the ability to do so because we've not created plausible structures of community and relationship. And it's why here at CCV, we are focusing over the next five to 10 years on creating extended family, not just nuclear family, 
mom, dad, kids, extended family, so whether you are single or widowed or divorced or struggling, same-sex attracted or, or pansexually attracted or not sexually attracted to anything, you can find intimacy. And it doesn't have to do with exploring your physical sexuality because the Bible says that it doesn't. It is an emblem, a matching point, a place where in the covenant of marriage we can reflect God, but it's not the only place to find true, deep connection and intimacy. But so far the church has failed in that one. I want us to change that. Faith begins with death. If you're going to believe in Jesus Christ, it's going to start with death. You're going to kill your pride and admit you're a sinner and fall upon the grace and mercy of God. The life of faith involves a death, killing my desires to believe that what God offers is better than what I have on my own. But the good news is this. In death, according to the gospel, there is life. Through death, there is life. Jesus promises us life through death, his death, and our dying. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will finally find life. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have life to the full. Jesus calls us to true life in him. Paul mimics this when he says, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And Paul, speaking about the death of Christ and how it's being lived out in his own life, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christopher West, who writes uh, an, a dummy's version, which is the only one that I could handle, of John Paul II's Theology of the Body, uses this analogy when it comes to our sexuality. We think we're getting the meal that we've always wanted when we do whatever we want sexually. Christianity, the Bible, suggests that we're eating in a dumpster. And what God is offering, and I think he might be stealing from C.S. Lewis here, what God is offering is a banquet table that you can feast on. In the covenant of marriage or in a life of celibacy, there's a banquet. Don't settle for the dumpster. And I have to ask, is it possible that that's actually true? <laughs> that's hard. That's hard. It's hard to get my head in that. That what God has given us in his calling in our life is not a demand but a gift, a counterintuitive, countercultural, counter to my wants and desires, upside-down offer that is infinitely better than what I can imagine on my own. True and lasting life isn't something we find and take hold of. It takes faith. And it begins on a cross, Christ's cross and then ours. Let's pray. God, we all fall short. The good news of Jesus Christ is that it is not our lifestyle that saves us, but Christ's death. God, we are all broken with wrong desires and wants. It is so hard to believe that what you offer is better than what we can get on our own. 
Help us to receive the gifts that you offer us instead of grasping them on our own. If you need to kill our pride and ourself, please do so. And give us life. God, we need to taste life. Many of us in here need to taste life. Give us the faith that's willing to surrender and taste your life. In Jesus' name, amen. Those who look to him. 